So many of you know that it's typical of humankind, this is just built into our DNA, to start out fearful of something until we grow in confidence. You can probably think of a couple examples where you're initially fearful of something, you were scared, and then as you got to know it, as it became um, true to you, as, as it was proved to be true, you grew in confidence. So I've got some examples. For some of you, that might be how you started out with roller coasters. So how many of you like roller coasters? Okay, I love a good roller coaster. But the first time you rode on a roller coaster was probably pretty nerve-wracking. You stood in line, you watched the roller coaster car ride around on the tracks, and your stomach probably twisted a little bit inside of you, thinking, am I actually going to be upside down for that long? But then you got on the ride, you did it, and chances are, after the ride was finished, you got out of your seat in one piece, and you realized it was actually enjoyable. And chances are you probably hopped right back in line to ride that ride again. So it started out as a scary thing. You were fearful, but then you grew in confidence. For others of you, it could be something like public speaking. Maybe you had a presentation you had to give in class, and you started out really fearful, really anxious about it. But maybe during the middle of that presentation, you started realizing, you know what? This isn't so bad after all. So you grew in, com you grew in confidence as the presentation progressed. There are many examples of this common life experience. When something is proven to be true, our fears disappear and our confidence grows. So over this past doxy year, we've had the joy of looking at Jesus' seven sayings on the cross. And then after that, we took one corporate to look at the resurrection of Christ. And finally tonight, at our last corporate for this year, I want to take a look at why it is crucial for us to understand the ascension of Christ. So as we survey the scriptures, my hope is that you learn more about Christ's ascension, and as a result, you grow confident in the Christian walk. So here's my proposition for you this evening. Since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God. Since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God. So the major question we're seeking to answer is how does the ascension make us confident to draw near to God? Because I'm, I'm saying that we need to recognize the importance of the ascension. So the practical outflowing question from that is how does this ascension actually make us confident to draw near to God? Well, I have three major points that all answer this question in a different way. Because we have to know how the ascension can actually make us confident to draw near to God. So my first point is this. The first way that Jesus' ascension makes us confident to draw near to God is that Christ's spirit has been sent. Christ's spirit has been sent. Without Christ's ascension, without him going to the Father, he would not have sent his spirit to his followers. Now how do we know this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Why don't you flip over your Bibles to John 16. Okay, John 16. This is the first of many passages we're going to be in today. So we're in John 16, and we're starting in verse 5. Now, what we're about to read comes right before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death, he comforts them with these words in verses 5 through 7. So John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, say this. This is Jesus speaking. But now I am going to him who sent me, 
and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is a remarkable, remarkable thing for Jesus to say. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus says, It is to our advantage that he goes and ascends to the Father. How could it possibly be to our advantage that Jesus leaving the earth to be with his Father, how could that be to our advantage? There might be a couple of answers that we could think of, but this is the one that Jesus saw as most important. He said, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells us plainly that it is good that he ascends, because when he did so, he was able to send his Holy Spirit to indwell believers. So how is it better that Jesus goes and that the Holy Spirit comes? Well, what Jesus is not saying is he's not saying that the Holy Spirit is greater than himself. All members of the Godhead are equal in power and in essence. But what he is saying is that his spirit is able to indwell every believer while the incarnate Christ is not. Since Jesus is incarnate, he has a physical body. Now, the word incarnate literally means in the flesh. So since Jesus is in the flesh, he has a physical body that can only be in one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is spirit. And therefore, he can be at all places at all times. So the Holy Spirit is how Jesus is able to indwell every believer. He is Christ's spirit. And therefore, it is as if Christ is in us. And indeed, he is. This is often why you hear adults talking to kids about asking Jesus into our hearts. What truly happens is that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and therefore Christ dwells in our hearts through his Spirit. So we see that before his death, Jesus promised that he would send his Spirit. And after his death and resurrection, right before his ascension, he promised once more that he would send the Holy Spirit. The first two chapters of the book of Acts are pivotal in understanding Christ's ascension and his sending of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1 retells Jesus' interaction with the disciples right before he left to be with the Father. So flip over just a couple of pages to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So as Jesus' disciples were talking with him after his resurrection... They asked him about restoring the kingdom of Israel. Now, this might have caught you off guard. It might not make full sense to you. But they asked this because, in their understanding, the Messiah, who Jesus was and is, was to be someone who would come and reign over Israel as king. So their question, while it was understandable, completely missed the point of Jesus' resurrection. He was not raised 
simply to be a king over a certain nation. Jesus was raised to be Lord over all the earth. And we know that Jesus certainly is king, not just over Israel, but over the entire earth, over the whole world. Now, I want you guys to think for a second about what it takes to have a good kingdom. Let's think through this. So if you're going to have a good kingdom, the first thing you need is a good king, right? In the scriptures, we see stories of good kings like King David, and we see stories of evil kings like King Saul. A good king is paramount for having to having a good kingdom. And second, you need people who are willing to serve the king and fight for the king. So you've got your king, and then you've got the people who are willing to serve that king. So many kings have armies that fight to protect their nation, and kings also have delegates who go out and tell other nations about their kingdom. So you need a good king, you need people who will serve the king, and lastly, you, not, you need not only a good king and people who serve the king, you also need those who serve the king to be empowered. So if you have an army, they need good weapons, right? What good is an army without good weapons? If you have delegates who are going to go and tell other kingdoms about your kingdom, then they need horses to travel on, they need food to eat, they need a message to spread. So these three things are what's necessary for a successful kingdom. A good king, servants, and resources that empower those servants. Now we see all of this here in this text. First, Jesus is the good king. You guys already know that, but it's good to have that reminder. He is over everyone, and he has total authority, which we're actually going to get to in our second point. So Jesus is the good king. Secondly, the disciples are his servants, specifically his delegates, who will go out and spread the good news. By extension, we also are his servants. But we need one more thing. We need our good king to empower us in the work that we are doing. And this is why Jesus sent us his spirit. Verse 8 tells us we will receive power when the Holy Spirit indwells us. That is a promise that can only come true if Christ ascends to the Father. And indeed, he does in the very next verse. So Acts chapter 1 shows us Christ's ascension into heaven. And the very next chapter records the story of when God's spirit was poured out on his people. So look over just to the next page to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. They say this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack in this passage, but unfortunately, due to time, we can't answer every question that may come up. But the main reason this passage is important, the main reason I'm reading it to you guys, is because it shows that Jesus makes good on his promise. Jesus makes good on his promise to send us his Spirit. He never once failed to make good on his promises. And this is yet another example of how he was faithful to his people. God is incredibly kind in giving us his spirit. The entire book of Acts, if you were to read through it from here, follows how the Holy Spirit enables the apostles and disciples to preach the good news to all the world. But the Holy Spirit does not just enable us in our evangelism. We read all over the scriptures how he also enables us to live a more holy life that is pleasing to God. Without him, we would be lost and we would be unable to please God. But thanks be to God 
that he has given us his spirit by whom we can grow in Christ's likeness as Christ is formed in us. So since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God. So first we see that the ascension makes us confident to draw near to God because Christ's spirit has been sent. Second, we see the ascension makes us confident to draw near to God because Christ is exalted. Christ is exalted. Now, the word exalted or exalt, it's probably not a word that we typically use every day, right? If my wife and I are putting away dishes and she wants me to put something on the top shelf, she doesn't say, oh dear, would thou please exalt this porcelain upon that top shelf over yonder, right? She doesn't say that. She's just going to say, can you put this up on the top shelf, please, right? So exaltation, in case you're unfamiliar with the word, it's simply the act of lifting something up to a higher place. Now, it doesn't mean much when it comes to a cereal bowl, right? In that example with my wife. But it is of vast importance when we're talking about Jesus Christ. He is exalted. He's lifted up in order to be given authority. Now, we know from Jesus' earthly ministry that he always has had authority. We see this. He proved it over and over again in his teachings and his miracles. However, the Bible places a unique emphasis on Christ's authority following his ascension. So the Bible makes, us, makes it really clear to us that Christ had authority following his ascension. So one passage we can look to in order to gain a clearer understanding of the exaltation of Christ is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. So let's flip over there now. We're slowly working our way through the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. So where we're picking up is in the middle of a prayer of thanksgiving from Paul for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus. He lists off different things that he desires them to know. The hope that they have, their glorious inheritance, and God's great power. And he, when he mentions this last one, God's power, he can't help but explain it in even more detail. Which is where we get verses 20 and following. So Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 23 say this. Talking about God's power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul talks about God's power here in two main ways. The first is in regard to the resurrection of Christ. Now we talked about this at our last corporate, but God's power was clearly on display when he raised Christ up from the dead. In defeating death, Christ was shown to have power and authority over death itself. That's the first way Paul talks about God's power. The second way he talks about God's power is in the ascension of Christ. Paul writes, that God the Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now we know that God is spirit, and he therefore does not have a physical right hand in heaven. Instead, the right hand is often referred to throughout scripture as a place of equal authority to the one who is in charge. The right hand, it, it signifies equal authority to the one who is in charge. Now with this in mind, Paul is saying that God the Father has given his son 
equal power and equal authority as himself, there could hardly be clearer evidence that Jesus is God. Now, there are some people who do not want to admit that Jesus is God. They would rather claim that he is a great moral example for us to follow. While this is not entirely false, Jesus certainly is an example, it misses the mark completely. J. Gresham Machen, who wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, says it this way. Here's how Machen explains it. He says, Jesus is no mere example for faith, but the object of faith. I'll say that one more time. Jesus is no mere example for faith, but the object of faith. In other words, Jesus is not just someone who we should seek to emulate, who we should seek to be like. He is someone who we should seek to worship. That's how we ought to view Jesus Christ. And why should we worship him? Because he sits at the right hand of the Father, and all power and authority belong to him and him alone. Paul continues to say that Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Paul's choice of words here is very, very telling. He could have just said, Christ is the top ruler and he's the most important authority figure. He could have said that. But instead, he shows us that Christ far exceeds even the highest earthly ranks. Jesus is far above all these things. His power and authority are unlike anything we have ever seen in this world. Even the most powerful of leaders in history still had weaknesses and still fell to other rulers. So if you're a big fan of history, men like Genghis Khan and Napoleon Bonaparte, not to be confused with Napoleon Dynamite, different guys, all these men and others, they tried to conquer the world. And although they had great power and wealth, they could not rule everything. They simply were not able to have authority over the entire world. But Jesus Christ, on the other hand, not only rules over the entire world, but he is also far above any and all rulers. And lest we think that Paul is just talking about the rulers in his day, he throws in the phrase, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. So he's covering all of his bases. right? He's saying not just the rulers today, he's saying all the ones who are to come. Christ is in charge of every single one of them. To keep the imagery of Christ's power going, Paul shares that God put all things under Christ's feet. This shows that all things are in subordination to Jesus. In addition to ruling the whole world, Jesus has a special relationship to the church in particular. Paul adds that Christ is the head and we are the body. This is an image that comes up countless times in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 5, he talks about the role of men and women in marriage, and he employs this image. Maybe you're familiar with that. Paul is obsessed with the imagery that Christ is truly the head of the church and the church is truly the body of Christ. And this truth should amaze us because the one who is far above all things, far above the entire world, sees himself as so closely related to us that he is actually one with us. So this is what it means that Christ is exalted. He has been given all authority everywhere, and all things are in submission to his rule and his reign. This is why Christ's ascension can make us confident to draw near to God. 
In these few verses, Paul marvels at the greatness of God's power as revealed in Christ. And my question for us is, do we see Christ's greatness as we should? Do we love to talk about it and think about it as the Apostle Paul did? I have to confess that I lose sight of this far too easily. It's easy to forget that Christ reigns far above all things, which includes the things that I worry about day to day and the things that I'm afraid of day to day. For example, for me personally, I'm often tempted to worry about the direction in which this culture is heading. That's a real concern that I have that that plagues me almost daily. We're growing more and more godless and pagan as the days go by. However, if what Paul says here is true, then Christ is far above my fears and my anxieties about the future of the society. Right? That's an easy application of this passage. Christ is exalted over all. We know this to be true from the scriptures, but is he exalted in your heart to the place that he should be? This is what we must dwell on and focus on. The ascension is important because Christ is exalted. Since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God. We come to our third and final point. We saw that the ascension gives us confidence because Christ's spirit has been sent and because Christ is exalted. Finally, the ascension can make us draw near to God with confidence because Christ is mediating between us and God. Christ is mediating between us and God. A mediator is someone who goes between two parties in order to bring them to an agreement. So the best example I can think of this, or think of for this, is when you and a sibling get in an argument. So I want you guys to imagine for a second. I know this would never be you. But I want you to imagine that you and a sibling are in a bitter dispute, okay? And if you don't have a sibling, you're going to have to imagine that you have a sibling first, okay? So once you've done that, then imagine you and your sibling got into an argument, okay? You're bickering back and forth. Tensions are rising. It's getting a little uglier, right? I see some of you looking at your siblings, right, nodding like, yeah, that's true. So it's getting worse and worse. And then finally, one of you decides that there needs to be an unbiased perspective on the matter. So that's when the classic words are yelled, and it's typically the younger sibling, at least in my case growing up, it was the younger sibling. Someone yells, Mom, Dad, so-and-so is being mean to me, right? How many of you have heard that? How many of you yelled that? Yeah, okay, a couple honest people, right? So those words are yelled, enter your parents. Right? It might be your mom, might be your dad, might be both of them. They enter into the conflict, and they hear both of you out. So they listen to one of you's side of the story, and then the other side of the story. They're listening to details. They're picking up on who wronged who and how. Your parents are there in order to mediate, to bring peace between you and your sibling, where there was previously disunity. This is what we mean when we say that Christ is a mediator. The Bible paints Jesus as a mediator in multiple passages, but two specific passages warrant our attention. So we're going to look at two passages here uh, as we come to a close. So first, the, the first passage is 1 Timothy 2.5. You don't have to flip there. It's just a real short verse, and I'll read it to you guys. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We learn here that Jesus is a mediator between two specific parties, God and mankind. Since in that illustration I just gave you, a mediator, like your parents, is someone who goes between two parties and reconciles them, then the question is, why do we need reconciled with God? Why do we need a mediator to go between God and man? An overview of the story of Scripture answers this question for us clearly. God created a perfect world, and in that world he placed a man and a woman created in his image to cultivate and keep and exercise dominion over the earth. However, Adam and Eve exchanged perfect communion with God in the garden for their desire to be like God. And the moment that they ate from the forbidden fruit, the relationship between God and man had been marred. As scripture unfolds, as we read through the story of scripture, we see God's people attempting to please him but failing in their efforts. God's law demanded perfect obedience, and yet they could not offer it. God's wrath against sin required satisfaction, and yet no one could perfectly fulfill the law and satisfy God's wrath. This is the predicament that mankind was in prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man, entered the world living a life of perfect obedience to the Father and taking the sins of the world upon himself, putting them to death and rising to defeat death. This gospel message began the reconciling process between God and mankind. So we needed Jesus' death and we needed Jesus' resurrection to free us from our sin once and for all. And yet we still need him. We need him continually. And this is why the ascension is so crucial. Because we need someone to reconcile us to God and to present us holy and blameless to God continually. Therefore, Christ did not just die and rise from the dead, although those are fantastic truths that we certainly affirm. He also ascended to the Father as our great high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was the ultimate mediator. That's what he was. He would go into the very center of the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. And he would sacrifice an animal for the sins of the people. And we've talked about this in past corporates. And how this is a picture pointing to Jesus as both the high priest, going between God and man, and the sacrifice, dying for the sins of the people. The second passage I want us to look at it's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So we can flip there now. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and actually the whole book of Hebrews sheds light on this. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as a great high priest and explains that he is the great high priest 
who has ascended. In other words, he is a great high priest because he has ascended. Without his ascension, he would not have the title of great high priest. When we think about Christ's ascension, we are tempted to think that since he's in heaven, he has nothing to do with us at all. Right? That can be a temptation for us. After all, he's God and we're not. How can he actually mediate between us and his father? Verse 15 answers this question. Our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses. We affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. As a man, he walked on this earth and experienced external temptations as we see in the scriptures. Jesus completely understands what it is like to be overwhelmingly bombarded by temptation after temptation. So what's the difference between us? He perfectly resisted all of it. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. These statements reveal how he can mediate between us and God. You see, from God's perspective on the matter... He needs a mediator who is perfectly sinless and holy. Nothing else will do to satisfy his just and holy wrath. And from our perspective, we need a mediator who truly understands and can enter into our predicament as humans. Jesus Christ is both of these things and is therefore the perfect and the only mediator between God and man. This should bring comfort to your souls. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this is one of, if not the most comforting truth that we can affirm. There is great and wonderful hope found in the ascended Christ who mediates between us and God. So since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God. The application is clear in verse 16. And it's my application for all of us today. Look with me once again. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because Christ has ascended, we have seen that three things are true. He has sent his spirit, he's exalted, and he is the mediator between us and God. Since these things are true, the author of Hebrews tells us we can actually have confidence when we approach God in prayer. Confidence is the opposite of fear, right? Some of you may be afraid to approach God in prayer. There there are a couple of reasons. I can think of two in particular. And I want you to think through if one of these two applies to you. It could be indwelling sin. Or it could be an irrational fear of God's wrath. So firstly, it could be indwelling sin. You may be feeling guilty about your sins. And to an extent, that's a wonderful place to be as you prepare your heart for the gospel to sink in. But if you let your guilt override your experience of God's grace, then you are missing the entire point of the gospel. The gospel is meant to ease us of our guilt. And this is what the ascension of Christ does for our souls. Now, if you are struggling with indwelling sin, there could be the fact that you do not want to give up your sinning. You are comfortable with your sin, and you might even like it. 
But the only way that you can grow to hate your sin is through approaching God's throne in prayer and asking him to change your heart to teach you to hate your sin. Now, the second thing is you might be irrationally afraid of God's wrath. And if that applies to you, let me tell you that God's wrath is directed towards sin. And if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, God's wrath is no longer on you because Jesus has taken it upon himself on the cross. Therefore, when the Bible talks about Jesus presenting us to God the Father, the Father does not take us in unwillingly. He's not a a father who turns away and says, you have to convince me to take them in. When Jesus presents us, he presents us holy and blameless. And the Father welcomes us into the family of God. He receives all who Jesus presents with fatherly love and affection. So do not fear the wrath of God so long as you've placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So whatever might be your fear, remind yourself that Christ has ascended. And that means that he has given you his Holy Spirit. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And he's mediating between you and God. There is no greater thing than to draw near to God in communion with him. And it's only possible because of the ascension of Jesus Christ. So since Christ has ascended, confidently draw near to God.